dealing with some big ideas for man overcoming passivity, addressing it, embracing the reality that it might be there. What do we do about it? Uh, building oneness. And uh, we take a step further, uh, this session and the next, that are, that are both very challenging, very difficult, not easy. And here's, here's the thing, that, that is great. That is exactly what we need. We need as men to be able to, to look at something and say, no, this is not easy. This is actually going to be tremendously difficult and a lifelong fight. And that is a good thing because we need that. I need the difficulty of the challenges that God has in front of me to expose my weaknesses and to expose where I'm not trusting in who he is. Where I have to find life that's deeper than who I am and find it in the person of Jesus and in his work. That his life becomes sufficient for me and not my own strength and not my own gifts and not my own talents. And maybe I can work harder or be smarter or go solve this problem or get some help or have some resources given to me. But I have to find life in something bigger than myself. So when we talk about passivity and oneness and we talk about some of the, some of the areas where we're going that are very difficult, it's actually a very good thing. So the big ideas we've talked about right there are oneness and uniqueness. A spiritual truth, a spiritual truth is oneness that we live into reality. And now we introduce the idea of uniqueness. And here's what we mean. When we say to be unique, uniqueness means this, equal in value, but ordained with distinction. Equal in value, but ordained. And we say ordained, we mean created by God, ordained by His very hand. We're talking about oneness is a spiritual truth that we live into reality, but uniqueness is that we are equal in value and ordained with distinction. We want to flesh that out. We know that we're different. I mean, it's only my sociology class um, at Clemson University where I had a professor look at me and say, men and women are the same. And I thought, well, I grew up with a sister and a brother, and I have a mom and a dad. And I mean, I'm new to higher education Think you could explain that a little bit? He goes, oh, we're, we're exactly the same. And so he tried to explain a few things where that, you know, seemed to be the case. I said, all right, well, maybe I should buy into that. I said, what about sex organs? He goes, we're not even sure if those are different. We don't know. I was like, all right, I might need to go to school somewhere else. Because <laughs> one of us is not from this planet. Okay? We are different. Let me give you some ways that we're different. Sexually, we're different. Chemicals that run through our veins, our hormones are different. When my son picks up a stick, you should be concerned. Because you don't know what's getting ready to happen. My daughters pick up a stick, I wouldn't worry about it. I don't know why. I can't tell you why. But just when one of my girls picks up a stick, it's probably to decorate it with something. Or to use it as a decoration. But when my son picks up a stick, the best thing, we, can you put that down? Put that down before somebody gets hurt. We just wired up differently. Personality. Some of you are analytical, but you are married to a woman who is big picture. Or you're big picture and she's analytical. And there's a hundred facets to personality. I just pulled out one. That analytical big picture thing. 
tons of um, personality quirks. The ones, this one's straight, that one's neat, that one's not. Um, there are gifts, sex, personality, gifts. How you're, you're, you have these gifts that you're given by God, and you're wired up towards mercy, and she's wired up toward leadership, or vice versa. You're an encourager. Um, she has this gift over here. And you have teaching, what, that we have all these gifts. We have talents that are different. So I put that in the same category. Gifts, um, by, supernatural by God, talents, things that we're born with, just wirings where we just have this unique ability to paint or to um, organize, whatever those are. History's different. She comes from a wealthy family, and you come from um, a family that struggled financially. That creates some differences in worldview, doesn't it? There are roles and responsibilities, which is where we'll spend some of our time in this session. There are roles that are given and responsibilities that are given by God, because we said equal in value, ordained with distinction. So there's sexual differences, personality differences, gifts, talents. There's historical differences, and then there's roles and responsibilities. And here's the reality. The uniqueness with which we are created is given by God. But many times, these are the things that will wear out a marriage. That will cause us to look down on each other and despise each other. Because here's the thing. For when we talk about one, it's a spiritual truth. But we are not one person. We are two people. And that is never changing. And so my wife and I, have, we have very different personalities, vastly different. That You can't think of an issue where you just throw it out there without preparing us that we're just going to go, oh yeah, we see that the same. I mean, I always try to think, what's the opposite of what I think? To be on page with her sometimes. I'm like, okay, what would I not say? That's a good stab at it right there. Okay? So our oldest daughter has diabetes. She got diabetes when she was six years old. She's 15 now. For years, we've had to, especially when she was really little, um, we would have to get up in the middle of the night to check her blood sugar. And so that was one of my roles. I get up at 3 a.m. to check her blood sugar. It's sky high, can make her very sick. She has to go to the hospital, very low. She could die. So, you know, so you wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and you're thinking, gosh, I'm so sleepy, so sleepy. How do I stay this way and get this done? Because if I go, I've got to walk upstairs, you know, pull out a glucometer, prick her finger, she'll stay asleep, um, get the blood on the thing, read it. If it's high or low, make a correction with her insulin pump or give her a shot or give her some candy or something like that. So i got to make all these adjustments. So I'm thinking, how do I do all this and stay sleepy? So then, on, you know, some nights you, you pull it off and you stay sleepy and you get back in the bed and you think, what did I just do? Did I just give her too much of this or too little of that? And then other nights you do it well and you go to get in the bed and you're like, um, now I can't go back to sleep. I'm wide awake. I'm so alert at what I was just doing. So but what would happen is is that I like to err on one side with blood sugar, and my wife errs on the other. And, and here's the thing. She, I would rather be a little higher. She'd rather be dialed in a little bit lower. So what I do is I sneak out of bed, go up there, do it, come back down, and, and try to ease into bed. Get into bed. I'm like, she's not awake. Lay down. All right, go to sleep. And then I hear this voice go, what was your sugar? And I go, just fake it like you're asleep. Fake it. She's like, I know you're awake. What's your sugar? It's like, well, 130. She's like, well, how much insulin did you do? I didn't do any. I think it's good. Matt, you got to give her some insulin. So here, we don't agree. 
I'm like, well, look, I'm the one who got up and I handled it. I think it's close enough. We're good. Let's just leave it. So no, no, I really think we need to give her some more. So here's the thing. You, what, what's like, there's hell, okay, which is the worst thing ever. Come up one level. What is that? 3 a.m. arguing with your wife. Okay, so there's hell, and then there's this. Now who's awake? Both of us. How awake? Wide awake. You've had just enough sleep where your body's recovering, you know, four hours or so, and then now wide awake, and you're angry. Here's the reality. Her view on blood sugar. How wrong is she? She's not wrong at all. She's actually right. She's actually totally right. Here's the other part of it. Here's what makes it so stinking complicated. I'm right too. You can go visit the doctors and the nurses and we can go, we both were all like, let me roll out what's going on. And they're like, you're both right. I'm like, that isn't helping us. (laughs) But we are. And the reality is, is I want to despise her for the way she feels and she wants to despise me. When we say despise, that means to look down, literally to look down on someone. I want to, I want to say, look, my position is better and you just need to come underneath me on this and vice versa. And there's a temptation because here's the thing. I'm never, ever going to agree with her completely. I just don't. I don't see it that way. I don't feel about it that way. And anything else, and, I'm, and, I, and it's not like I'm trying to be stubborn. I'm just saying the numbers are on my side. Well, the reality is the numbers are on her side too. And so she's not ever going to see it exactly. Now, I do it her way plenty, and she does it my way plenty. We make all kinds of compromises because we got to love each other and we got to live together. But the reality is we are two different people. And the reality is she was created that way. And I was created that way. Everyone in our culture is pushing for sameness. And the reason we want sameness is because for us, we have a very dumbed-down view of this, of equality. For us, equality means sameness. And that's because there's been some abuse in our past. Separate but equal meant separate and not equal All right, in our schools. And so we have perverted the idea of equality and said, if we're going to be equal, we're going to be same. So when you go to Washington, D.C., and you, you look at rush hour... Everybody's headed to work and watch they see what? They all look like men wearing black suits, whether they're men or women. They all look the same. All right, they all look like men. Sameness, equality, that's the only way she can compete is if she looks like a man, acts like a man, dresses like a man, talks like a man to compete. All right, you come to church, what? Everybody looks like women. All right, the colors are all flowery. We sing songs that make me uncomfortable. I'm like, I don't want to hold Jesus. I don't want to hug him. I don't think... Maybe I do. I don't know. This song makes me uncomfortable. I want to rub his beard. I don't, I don't, I don't know what that means. It's, it's, we've, we've over-masculinized some ways, okay? And then we've feminized all this other stuff. And so it's all about sameness, and everybody's got to fit into that. But the culture of the 50s made, made a, it's a false version of masculinity where men were domineering and demeaning to women in our culture, culturally speaking. And then in the 90s, we shifted in the other direction and everything became feminized. And so men are having to follow. And so, and I love Promise Keepers. They did some great things. But here's one of the things that people heard was that you need to go home and serve your wife. Okay, there's nothing in the Bible about serving your wife. Nothing. Now, do you need to be a servant leader? And do I need to serve my wife? Sure. 
but we took it as a, you've been abusing your wife, go home and serve your wife, which means we made a woman in charge of the home and she's leading everything and I'm her cabana boy and she goes and tells me what to do and I got to run around and do all these things, solve all these problems. And so she's in charge of everything. And that's what it came to mean to serve your wife. That is not what God has in mind. We have some differences. We're going to have to learn how to manage those. Talk about those. Genesis 127, he says this. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Which is fair enough. Created people in his own image. And then he dials it down. Male and female, he created them. Both in his image. Equal in his image. But they don't look alike. They don't look alike. They don't talk alike. They don't act alike. And they don't think alike. But they are equal in his image. But they are not the same. So it makes the passages we read before. And we'll read again. When the two become one. But they're still two. But they're one. But they're two. But they're one spiritually. But they're two physically. Makes that all the more meaningful. That God has created them in his image, male and female. They are the same in equality, but they are not the same physically when you look at them. They are created differently. And here's the thing, they both represent his image. And so when you hear a man talking, and you hear him express his soul and his guts and his perspective on life, and when he begins, now it's a marred image of God. It's scarred up and there's some sin involved in that. But when you hear the raw ambition of a man and the way he thinks about things, you are hearing the voice of God and the way God thinks. Now here's the thing. It's scarred up and it's got sin involved in it and it's tainted. So it's not inerrant like God and it's not God. It's, but you're, his, God's image has been pressed down and the masculine part of God has been pressed down on that man so that man reflects his image in all that masculinity. Because he's in the image of God. Same thing with women. When you hear a woman's heart and you hear her perspective and her thoughts about things, and sometimes I'm thinking, what planet? What planet is this coming from? I'm like, how did you get there? And then it dawned on me one day, she, Vicky's waxing about something. I'm listening. I'm thinking, that sounds familiar. I've heard something like that before. I've heard something like that very recently. Where did I hear? Um, it was different words, but it was the same thought. Where did I hear that? And then it dawned on me like two hours later. I had read a passage the day before in Scripture that had the same thoughts as what she was illustrating, what she was saying. Different words, same. And I'm like, she knows that because she has been created in the image of God and he's expressing, he has all this femininity about him that he has impressed down on her and now she expresses that in the world. So masculinity and femininity are part of being made in the image of God. And here's the thing. We wind up hating each other for our differences. We wind up getting so frustrated at each other for our differences. And so... Masculinity has all these expressions that, you know, we don't want to be stereotypical and we don't want to oversimplify and say, well, all men are like this and all women. It's more complicated than that. But there are some things that you see, the way men think about power. You know, when you express that to a woman, most women are like, no, I don't, I don't get that competition thing as much. That doesn't make quite as much sense to me. I'm not sure why you're doing that. But I had some ants bite one of my kids um, a few years ago. And fire ants, and they just tore up my son. And so I went out there, and I went out of the house, and I found a half gallon of Coleman fuel. <laughs> and I, 
I spent about 20 minutes soaking that hole. And then I got back a little bit later, threw the thing on it. And it was just kind of a tower for a long time. So then, and I was really angry. And my girls came out, a couple of them came out. They said, Dad, why, why, are we, why do we have a fire in the backyard? And, they, and I said, well, some ants bit Micah, made me mad. I wanted to burn them. <laughs> she said, you know, we still have some of the ant killer, the granules. You just use the ant killer. You remember when we watered the hole and then we put the ant killer? I was like, no, that's not what we're doing. And it was perplexing to all the women in the house. 30 ant bites on my son. I want to see you burn. It's just how I feel. Right? I can find you passages in the Bible that parallel that for how God feels. Sometimes he just rips stuff apart. A woman has a sense of beauty that men do not have. My girls can walk through the den. Something comes on, ice skating in the Olympics. My girls walk through the den, and to a girl, they will stop. One of my girls has never seen it before. Stop and be mesmerized. I said to the little one, I said, what do you see when you look at that? She goes, that is beautiful. The ability to have beauty and to recognize beauty. We all have beauty. We all recognize beauty. But men don't have it the way women have it. Hence, the Bible says for a woman to be modest. What is modesty? It's her managing her beauty. It's something that, it's why women care so much about it. Not because of culture. Women are created with a sense of beauty. The ability to recognize it in ways that we don't and enjoy it in ways that we don't, and manifest it in ways that we don't. So, creating the image of God. And when we experience the differences in each other, we are experiencing the image of God. We're hearing God's perspective from the other one. And here's the thing, though, is that we have got to learn how to value and celebrate that. And we we got to talk to our men and say, she thinks differently than you do. She acts differently than you do because she is different than you are. And, and, And you have to learn to recognize that in her. And here's the thing. You've got to go to your wife and explain to her that you are not her. I have interviewed a hundred women around a lot of these issues and done small groups with them. And here's, here's the thing, is that most women believe that men are just broken and immature versions of women. And they're working to get him to come around. If she invests enough time in him, she can get him on board with the plan. And I have to explain to, to women, he's not a woman. He's not a broken version of a woman. He's not an immature version of a woman. He might be immature, but even his maturity is not going to bring him to femininity. Let's hope. And so uh, to one woman, she said, I mean, my husband, she was a believer. Her husband's not. And I said, she said, I just can't wait for him to become a believer. I think he's on the way. And I said, can I tell you something? I said, the day that he becomes a Christian and he starts embracing his masculinity in a biblical way, it's going to be a hard day for you. I said, because right now you run over him in all areas of spirituality. I said, but when he becomes a believer, that sleeping giant is going to be wakened. And he's going to have thoughts and feelings about spiritual things, some of which you are not going to agree with. And he's going to want to lead you in vastly different directions. And this little realm that you've been leading on in your family, he's not going to let you lead anymore. And he's got to have his own thoughts and feelings. And it's going to be a different day for you. 
She goes, well, I just thought, I was like, no, no, that's the way you feel about those spiritual things. He doesn't, he's not going to feel that way about those things. He's not going to want to hold hands and get a flowery cover for his Bible and sit around and sing songs and share deep thoughts about whatever. He's not want to do that with you. That's great for you, but that's probably not the way he's going to, he's not going to carry his Bible in a little flower thing, all right? He, that's not the way he's going to think about spirituality. It's going to be very different than the way you process that and think about that. 1 Peter 3, 7. You see the differences manifested here in a New Testament way. In the same way, you husbands, give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. Treat her with understanding. She's weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner. Here, both created equal in the image of God, but different. One is stronger, one is weaker. This one deserves honor. But treat her as an equal partner, God's gift of new life. Treat her as you, as you should so that your prayers will not be hindered. He goes, what we would say is a redeemed masculinity, not abusive like what we saw in Genesis 3 from the fall. Your desire shall be for him, but he will abuse you. He will hurt you. You should honor her rather than abuse her. She should be honored in this process. But notice how this passage does not say that they are the same. Though they are equal in value... They do not have the same perspective and the same situation in life. You live with her as with knowledge. She has um, a different perspective than you do. She is unique from you, and that is valid. Right? Created equally, but she has some distinction. Equal partner, which means that a man has a tendency to devalue his wife and not elevate her and not honor her. And he goes, remember that you should live with her in this way so that your prayers will not be hindered. In other words, it acknowledges that this man has authority in this relationship and in the home. And he says, I'm giving you that kind of authority, but I'm reminding you that I have authority over you. That your authority is delegated. You are not absolute running amok. And for those who are in authority over people, when they abuse that, they have to answer to me. And so here's, here's what I'm getting ready to say. I'm getting ready to say that leadership in the home is part of your unique role and part of the uniqueness that helps create tension in your home. I'm getting ready to say that. But before we say that, I wanted you to see this 1 Peter 3 passage because your leadership without this kind of consideration that your authority is delegated and there's one that rides over you that will judge you, that is a critical part of how you go about leading in your home. A leader, and I've seen this done a few times, and it's really, really helpful and been a part of this. A leader will take this 1 Peter 3 passage and put it in front of his wife and say, talk to me. Tell me about where you feel devalued. Tell me about where you feel abused or exploited in this, in this relationship. Because Jesus would never do that. Jesus exerts authority over the church, but he would never abuse the church. And if I'm living in authority over you, then I, I, I do not want to be abusive in that. Let's, let's look at Ephesians 5. We unpack it a little further. And we're just shooting straight. This is what the scriptures say. And we're trying to put them into our modern context. Ephesians 5 verse 22. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. So he said, men, you're to be the head of this home. You go, what does that mean? Well, even if we can argue about what that means, we can't argue about what this means. Submit to your husbands. It's, a, it's, an inflex, it's a reflexive idea. Okay, It's something that she does to herself. A husband doesn't do this to a wife. She does this to herself. It's in the middle voice. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. So he's the leader of the church. 
He's leader of the home. He is the savior. He is the savior of his body, the church. The church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands in everything they do. Here's the, here, here's the question that's in front of you. Because some of you are thinking, oh my goodness. What about this? This is this no one in our culture would think this is a good idea. This would not be well received on Oprah with her great wisdom and insight. Okay, here's my here's my thing. Even if I didn't think the Bible was true, which I think it is, that anything that's not well received in our culture would get a thumbs up from me because of how messed up our culture is. So you would almost give something credibility if our culture rejected it. All right? Now, on top of that, I think we're being inspired by the Holy Spirit. Here's God's word. Here's my question for you about leadership. Because some men will think, okay, well, then I got to be the leader of the home. She needs to submit. Here's the question. Is if someone went to your wife and she knew she wasn't going to get in trouble, and if she said, would she say this? The leadership that my husband provides in our home is a blessing and a covering to me. That is the test of my leadership in my home and the leadership in your home. And so is your leadership a blessing and a covering for her? Where if she were to go away for the weekend with some of her friends and someone said, honestly, how's your marriage? She would say, I'm going to tell you something. I'm married to this man. He's weird. We are not the same. I've been trying to make him a woman my whole life, but he's not going to do it. He's a man. He's different than I am. And there have been a couple times where we didn't agree, and he made a decision that I didn't agree with. And a couple of those times, it proved, he proved to be right. And a couple of those times, he proved to be wrong. So he's made a couple of decisions, a few decisions here and there that I didn't agree with, but most of the time we agree. But here's, the, here's what I would tell you. Even with um, how weird he is and how different he is and how unique he is and some of the decisions I don't agree with, here, even with this, here's what I would tell you. Marrying that man is the best decision I ever made. My life is better because I married him. His leadership, it never benefits him. When he makes a decision that I don't like or we talk about it and we can't come to terms and he'll ask me a hundred times and we'll talk about it, we'll talk about it, we'll talk about it, but we still can't come to terms. And he goes and makes this decision that I don't necessarily agree with. Even in those moments, the decision that he makes never benefits him. He only makes decisions with his authority and his responsibility that benefit our family or that benefit me. Even when we don't agree, I can't accuse his motives because the, the beneficiary is never, it's never himself. He never puts himself at the center. So the question for a woman is, is this man's leadership a blessing and a covering for you? Because that's what Jesus says the difference is. The Gentiles um, take leadership and they lord it over people so that they benefit from their leadership. Jesus says, my kind of leadership is still leadership. You don't go in and do everybody's job for everybody and solve everybody's problem all the time where you, where you um, like if you're a servant in your company, you don't go in and do everybody's job. You're still the leader. You still, have to give, you still have to exert authority. But you are not the one who gets blessed from your leadership. You are not the one who receives the benefit from your leadership. It's that your family, your wife receives the benefit. And over time she sees that, that his leadership is a blessing and a covering for me. It's the best decision I ever made. Verse 25. For husbands, this means loves your wives as Christ loved the church. We've read some of this before. Gave his life for her to make her holy and clean by washing her with God's word. 
He did this to present her to himself as as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands love love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. We talk about that because why? Because they're one. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it. He shepherds it, takes care of it, oversees it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. Love equals sacrifice. And there is this connection we talked about of oneness. And so I've had a, a couple sit in front of me. When we first started the church, they sat down, tell me all their marital problems. She dumps for 20 minutes about all their issues. I look at him. I know nothing about counseling, but I figured, well, we'll give, give him a chance to talk. I said, what do you think about everything she just said for the last 20 minutes? He goes, I'm going to tell you something. He goes, I mean, I can see what she's saying. She's got some real problems with our kids. He goes, but I mean, I don't, I don't have any problems with our kids. And I, I mean, and I thought, there's a part of me that just said, aren't y'all, aren't y'all married? I mean, it was just, I don't even know enough theology to do anything or enough Bible for anything. I'm just getting started. But there was a part of me, viscerally as a man, I wanted to take my ballpoint pen and just grab him by the hair and just stab him in the jugular and bleed him out right there. I just thought, you are making the rest of us look bad. You're such a sorry excuse for a man. You're making men everywhere look bad. You should cease to live. Someone needs to bring it to an end because he's just throwing her under the bus. I mean, yes, she does have some problems with her kids. I'm like, bro, I said, bro, here's the thing yeah, before I kill you. You, you. you guys are one. Give you another chance here. You guys are supposed to be together. If she has problems, you have problems. You're in this together. As the scriptures say, even though you're different, even though you're very different, as the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother, joins his wife, united into one, but there's still two people. This is a great mystery, but it's an illustration. Verse 33, so again, I say each man must love his wife, as he loves himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. See the differences again? He gives the currencies of a marriage. Is that her greatest need is to be loved, her greatest felt need is to be loved. And he goes, this is a role that this man gets to play. But none of us men say, what's the greatest thing you want from your wife? I just want her to love me. I've never heard a man say that. Men, men, they'll phrase it in different ways, but what they want is they want admiration and respect. I tell ladies, I'm like, look, you're having sex this many times a month with your husband. You're thinking, I'd like to reduce that. Here, you want me tell you how to get out of having some sex? Is just be respectful of him. That'll substitute for sex. They're like, really? I'm like, yes. You'll be off the hook for one or two of those. By just coming in and bragging about him, telling him how great he is. He'll be, so, he'll be off in euphoria land. He won't even think about pursuing you. He'll be like a robot that overcirculates. Oh, my goodness. He won't know what to do. This is the currency of marriage is that she desperately wants to be loved. She's created by God in that way. And it's the way that you represent God's image of sacrificing for her and loving her. And it's the way that she represents God's image by sacrificing and respecting and honoring him. And so it's a powerful idea, but it shows that they're not the same. They're coming from different angles. And what they bring to this marriage is very different. 1 Corinthians 11. But there's one more thing I want you to know. And we're pulling all these verses out of context. I know. You go back and research them later. The head of every man is Christ. The head of every woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Um, He'll go on to say that men were not created for women. Women were created for men. Because I want you to notice the head of every man is Christ. The head of every woman is, is the man. And you'll see once again, very different. Okay? And you're thinking, what, is, what does all this mean? There are different roles here. 
And when we hear this, we go, okay, so um, man is the head of woman, so that must mean he's better. It does not mean he's better. He must have more value because he's in a headship position. Not any more than the head of every man is Christ and then the head of Christ is God. See, the Trinity, they function in equality, but there are some different roles. Jesus sends the Spirit. The Father sends the Spirit. There are some different roles within the Trinity. And Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. It's a place of honor, but it's also next to the Father. So there's some roles there, but their value is the same. So here the man functions in, in, a, in a place of leadership and headship, but the value is the same. All right? Colossians 3.19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be embittered against them. Which means there's the potential to be embittered. Is that we are different. We live in a fallen world. My passivity does this. We have a graph right there. A little graphic. Here's what we're saying about men. Is that the idea is not for you to write down a list of things as a man and go do those things. The idea is not even to say, Jesus is the model, I'm going to be like Jesus. Jesus is a model, I need to be like Jesus. But the very life of Jesus is available to us. And so here's what we're trying to say to men. Is that um, some men can be very domineering. And some men can be very disengaged. And both of those are forms of passivity. And what we would say about Jesus is that Jesus is powerful and he's gentle. And you have a unique role that's different than your wives to lead. And you need to lead with power and with gentleness. Okay? And sometimes people say, no, well, I can see how the, the guy who's disengaged, he's real sweet, he doesn't like the conflict, and um, I can see how he's passive. How is a domineering guy passive? Here's what we said earlier is that passivity is not related to personality. Both these men, the man who's disengaged and the man who's domineering, they're both passive. The man who's disengaged, he hates conflict. He doesn't want to deal with the tension. He doesn't want to deal with it. So he just pulls back and lets the world fall apart. And his wife and family head down that road, and it's not good. But, but he doesn't want to deal with the conflict, so he just disengages, and he's kind of weak in that way. You go, well, I can see how that's passive. All right? This guy over here is domineering. He's controlling her and he's pushing on her and he controls the kids and everything has to fit into his framework and it has to happen his way, his time, and everything is micromanaged and dealt with and he's just domineering and powerful. You're like, well, he's not passive. No, he is passive. You know why? Because he, he's willing to manage the physical side of things, but he's passive towards the heart and soul of his wife. He don't care anything about how his kids think and feel. All he wants is external conformity. He doesn't care what's going on in the souls of the very people that he's responsible for and he's supposed to be shepherding. All right? And so we have that there for you. Just kind of look at it and you go, okay, powerful and gentle are both great things. And these need to make up part of the role that I play that's distinct and unique for my wife. Let me run through some problems that we see. Neglect. Neglect of a wife. Physically, mentally, emotionally. Neglect is something that we see in this leadership role. He just is neglecting her, okay? Or he just uses her as a maid and a sex toy, but there's just this neglect. Um, belittling. He sees her as different, and he hates the fact that she's different, and he hates the fact that he can't get her perspective to line up with his, and he's afraid to try to lead her, though she's different than he is. He's afraid of her opinion. He doesn't like um, the things that she thinks and how she feels, so he just dismisses and disregards and belittles her for who God created her to be. 
And let me tell you something. When you demean something that God created, you're putting yourself in harm's way. You're bringing, you're bringing, you're inflicting a wound on yourself before it's over. Another thing we see is this controlling that men like to do, just trying to control everything, where you put yourself at the center of the universe of your home and use leadership and submission as a weapon to get yourself in the middle so everybody can take care of you and feed you. Here's another one that's counterintuitive, something that we see that's real difficult, is, is the mission that you think you're supposed to please your wife. This couple comes in after 20 years, we sit down and we talk, and she runs through a laundry list of things that are wrong in their relationship. And he look at him and go, tell me what you think. And he says, you know, he goes, all I've ever tried to do is please her. And he gives a laundry list of all the things. She wanted that house, I bought that house. She wanted that car, I bought that house, that car. She wanted to live here, we live there. She wanted to do this, she wanted to live close to her mom, we did this. She wanted to do this, these friends, this, this, this. He's got a laundry list of 50 things that he's done to please her. And then I have to look at him and go, you understand something? The Bible never told you to please your wife. It told you to love your wife and lead your wife. Live with her in an understanding way. But you're supposed to please God. And here's the thing. You've run off into a whole other universe of pleasing her that's led your whole family down the wrong path. And he says, well, I mean, she said, if I didn't support her in this and help her do this, I wouldn't be unsupportive. I said, no passages say you have to be supportive. If she had a drug habit, would you be supportive of that? That's extreme. It's ridiculous. I hear you. But there's lots of shades of gray back from that that aren't ridiculous. She's, she's trying to do this endeavor that's not healthy for her or your family, and, and she's guilted you into being supportive. You're not supposed to be supportive if it's something that God doesn't want. See, this is the tough role. When I said it's going to be hard, when we talk about a unique role of leadership, this is where it gets hard. It's because I'm going to have to find a gentle, loving, and powerful way to lead when, when the family's being pulled apart in different directions. Another thing we see is not being willing to conflict is that there's conflict here, and I just want to say, look, whatever you want is fine. Rather than saying, look, we're going to have to work through this. this. I don't think this is good. Or I have to initiate a conflict and say, in the name of oneness, and in the name of the future of oneness, in the name of the future of our relationship, we're going to have to deal with a difficult issue even though we don't want to. Letting her spin out of control, and she gets frustrated and starts gossiping and slandering and being angry and having a tongue that's not kind. And just letting her vent and say, look, I mean, I hear you're frustrated, so you vented a little bit. But you know what? What you're doing right now is not, not godly. Being willing to, to, to move towards her and play that leadership role. Um, not setting the emotional tone for the home and saying, Here, here's where we are. Here's the, here's the tone that I set emotionally for our home. Creating mutual accountability or failing to do so is something that we see. Because... I'll say to women sometimes, I'll like, you know, do you believe that your husband's perfect? They're like, no, husband's not perfect. I'll say, so do you think that you need to come to him sometimes and be able to say, voice, this isn't going well. I think you're not handling something well. She's like, absolutely. And I said, do you think he should be responsive to what you say? When, you, when something's wrong, he's sinful, he's making a bad decision, and you think he should hear your voice when you express that something's not right here. He should respond to that. She's like, absolutely. So, all right. I said, I agree with you. And I think so many times men are not responsive to that, but they need to be. I said, can I tell you something else, though? You're the same way. A man needs to be able to come to you and say, you know what? I don't think this is good. And without guilt or manipulation or crying or throwing a temper tantrum, you need to be able to listen to him and go, okay, that's hard to hear, 
but I need to hear it. I'll listen to it. And you may not be totally right in everything you're saying, but we're going to sift through it and we're going to figure out what is right in all that. You need to give that man some freedom. And most women will say, all right, that sounds like the most difficult thing I've ever heard and most miserable thing I've ever heard, but you're right. But most of our men are not willing to, to move in that direction. Um, something else we see, men backing away from sex, backing away from her physically. She hurts you, she rejects you, I'm done. I can't deal with this anymore. Something else we see, uh, she's the natural leader. You realize half of the people in our congregation, let's say there's 100 people in a church, um, and they're, you know, 50% men, 50% women. Half of those women will be more naturally oriented towards leadership than the men will. Because when we say um, talented to lead, gifted to lead, um, that's not the same as called. So leadership gifts are dispersed among women just like they are with men. Men aren't naturally given more leadership talent or um, gifted more, with more leadership talent or more leadership spiritual gifts than women. Okay, But so what's got to happen is, is when he's not as much the leader guy and she has strong leadership talents, abilities, gifts, then they're going to have to talk. They're going to say, okay, so in, in our situation, you're more naturally the leadership person. So what does it look like for me to step forward and you to step back a little bit around these issues in our home? What will that look like? These critical things where a man does need to lead, what will that look like? And you go, well, gosh, that's going to be a hard conversation. It's a hard conversation, but you have to have the same conversation anyway. If the man's more naturally gifted or spiritually gifted to lead and the woman's not, you've got to have that same conversation for her to be a part. How can she be a part of the discussion when he handles everything? So in either case, how we manage leadership in the home is a huge discussion that's not one time, it's ongoing. And then when you get the biggest wound you can get from a woman, when a woman withdraws her admiration and respect for you and shows disgust or um, disapproval, that is a huge wound that goes on a man. And we talk some more about that in our next session. But how do you deal with that? Are you just going to fold up and quit? Are you just going to back away forever wounded? And some of us don't have the tools yet to deal with that. And we need to talk about how the gospel empowers us to move towards one another and how the gospel brings about reconciliation and redemption in our homes. But the biggest wound a man suffers is when a woman pulls back her approval. Then what do we do? Are we still going to follow? Are we going to respond to her? Or are we going to respond to God who says, I'm called you to lead? So I know the question running through most of your heads is this. How will I learn all this? Let me give you three ways and then we're done. First one is you need to sit quietly and you need to meditate and you need to ask the Spirit of God to talk to you. You need to sit down and just with your own quiet thoughts, let God's very Spirit Himself, He will highlight for you where you are struggling and He'll begin to give you a vision for, for what movement looks like. That you as a couple are not the same. You have uniqueness. There's diversity there. And how that's ripping you apart or it's eroding your relationship and what needs to change, he'll start to speak to you. In this area and all the other areas we're talking about. You need to sit with other men. You need to sit with other men and talk to them and listen to them about how they have developed their relationship, how it's going. You need to learn from them. Well, what happens with this? What do you do in this situation? Not that you're going to go copy them or fulfill a list, but you're going you're to broaden your horizon and your vision listen to them. And then you're going to sit with your wife. You're going to learn from the Spirit of God. You're going to learn from other men. And then you're going to learn from your wife. And say, in what ways do I demean you? In what ways do I minimize 
your uniqueness? How can we begin to leverage this relationship to work together? And you need to say to her, here are the ways that I feel you don't get my uniqueness. I feel like you're trying to make me fit into your mold. All right, so it's going to take some conversation with God himself, with other men, and with your wife. Because here's the reality. Is it just like you have an original thumbprint? Every marriage is these two thumbprints coming together, and it is unique unto itself. And it's supposed to be. The unique personalities, gifts, wirings, um, sexual differences, personality differences, historical differences, all that come together to make for a unique marriage. And no one else in the history of the world will ever be able to experience what God has for you in your marriage. There are moments that you will have together because of your oneness and your uniqueness that nobody else in the world will ever in history or in the future experience what you experience the way you do because the two of you are unique. And God has brought you together. All right, let's pray. We'll be done.